Welcome to this Epic Life Podcast, our platform to create dialogue and deepen community with you. You, the listener, can build on these conversations on the Epic Chat Forum that we host on Facebook. So after the episode, head over there and join in. We'd love to hear your stories of growth. Come and build this community with us. In this episode of the podcast, we sit down with Epic Education's equity trainer, Duran Washington, to discuss the harmful connotations behind the statement, you are beautiful for a black girl, and the microaggressions we experience when it comes to Eurocentric beauty standards. Diving into the conversation, we discussed how someone made the comment to you that you're pretty for a black girl. And I think that everyone can relate to hearing types of comments like that being made and and not realizing at the moment how damaging that is really and and the broader context behind that. So I want to hear what you got about this, Dran. Sure, sure, absolutely. I am from Kansas City, Missouri. And so it seemed like the demographic makeup was just this black-white binary. And so the first time I heard it, I thought it was normal right? Because comments like that were just kind of common in, in the area of Kansas City, Missouri that I grew up. And, and I'm pretty sure they're, they're probably still very rampant there now just because of like, you no know, miseducation or just whatever else. But yeah, I remember the first time someone said, oh, you're, you're so beautiful for a Black girl or you're so pretty for a Black girl. I think I was getting ready for homecoming my freshman year of high school. And I had neighbors who would have identified as white. And, and we still know them. They're, they're great friends of the family. And my mom keeps in touch with them as she's still in Missouri. But I remember they came up to see me before I went to homecoming because we're doing all the picture stuff. And there's like juice and cookies and the kiddos running around. It's like a, a special thing. It's my first like big dance in high school. And my, my mother's friend's husband who I, again, identified as white. He was like, wow, Uh, my nickname is Binky at home. He said, wow, Binky, you're so beautiful for a black girl. I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you. So I just thought it was wonderful. Like I just, and to be honest with you, I think that we were already so, you know, well, I think for myself growing up, I was conditioned to believe that kind of like having the approval of being attractive to someone who was white was like very like validating. And so I think for a long time, it, it caused me and maybe many others to to drop off the for a black girl, girl piece. You're just the feeling of just wow, you know, you think that I'm beautiful, right? It, it, it was like some some conditioning, you know. It was really interesting, but it took some time to to learn how how damaging that can be, right? And I think. What's even difficult for you in that position is it's not necessarily damaging to you. It's uplifting to you, but it's to the rest of the black girls that are around. Like, what does that mean to them? You know, and, and that's the disconnect is it's like, okay, so I'm not just beautiful as a person, but I'm beautiful compared to these girls because what you're trying to say that they're not usually beautiful or something. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I I think that's where it was interesting, right? Because prior to that, that was like the standard, right? The standard is like you were saying, is being beautiful comparison comparable to who, right? Yeah. And so without actually saying it, you you kind of know. And then growing up realizing that, you know, when you say that I'm I'm pretty for a black girl, it, it may also be revealing that there's some unconscious bias that says that commonly 
African-American women or Black women are not attractive. Mm -hmm. And so when you are attractive, I have to note this. This is noteworthy Mm -hmm. because maybe in some way you align with the standards of beauty for the, the Eurocentric way that we have conceptualized beauty. So maybe your features are more aligned with that. So with, with education, we know now what that means, that it's, you're saying that you are the exception to Black women because you are beautiful, because commonly Black women are not, or Latino women are not, or women who are, are bigger in size are not. You know, we start going on and on about these microaggressions, like, you're so pretty for a fat girl. Or you're so pretty to be so skinny. But but Ali, you don't hear maybe a white woman say to another white woman, you're so pretty for a white girl. Yeah. It, it just sounds almost frivolous. I, it, <laughs> because because that's, that's, there's no need to make the distinction of race there because we have it ingrained in our consciousness that white or Eurocentric features are the standard of beauty. Yeah. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's so many beauty products out there or just types of looks that are, you know, marketed towards women of color. And it's to get a more Eurocentric look, you know, it's skin lighteners, hair straighteners, you know, contacts for your eyes to make your eyes lightly colored. Right. And when these women buy into this, I feel like there's kind of this like overarching look of like, well, you know, you're going to get mad at us for, you know, making these comments about like, you know, the Eurocentric look being pretty, but yet you're buying into it and you're taking these products and trying to play into this. So what, do you just hate yourself? Like, do you, do you hate your look? Cause then you're just like kind of proving our point, you know? And, mm-hmm. you know, I took a class where we talked about this extensively about how, you know, this gets misconstrued as like a self-hatred type of thing. It's not about being self-hatred. It's about that, like, people are just, these women are trying to fit in, you know? They're trying to feel good about themselves and they're going about it in a way that that is being pushed into their face, you know? It's not like, I don't know, it's a, it's a lot of subconscious layers that right. are, and that's what microaggressions are about. It's, it's these little, tiny, right stacks of stuff that just keeps adding and adding and adding to the pile. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and going back to the top of what what you're sharing, I agree that it's not exactly self-hatred. However, we do hear that rhetoric often. I see why. I see, I understand, I'm growing to understand more why that rhetoric is used, that the hatred, Mm -hmm. because it can look like that when it's manifested in real form. But I think that it may also be a denial of self or an avoidance of self. And when you are born and raised on these shores, especially a lot of women of color or, you know, women, women who, who identify as white, but are not, who are still outside of these, again, standards of beauty, body type, no structure, um, hair color, whatever else, right? But if you're born on these shores, you have been under this confusion of seeing media images that usually do not reflect you. So if this was what you were born into, it's not like you 
ever think of yourself to hate it. It's more so I'm going out into the diaspora. I'm going out into the world looking for things that I can put on to me, to adorn myself with, to look more like the standards of beauty that have already been constructed before I I was even here. And then it's not until later, like myself, right? In that homecoming dance. At that time, I I knew exactly what to do in in the world or what to gain in the world to look more like these standards of beauty or to present myself in a way that might be accepted. But it's not until more recently, through my career, through my studies, and and now as, as a professor, that I'm able to recognize that I never took time to see me, to learn me and to recognize how the things that I'm equipped with are beautiful, they're in place, they're healthy. So hatred could be, that that could be, but I think it's more of like a, a denial or not ever really seeing yourself, but more so going out into the world very fast paced, looking for ways to reconstruct the being you are so that it might align with these standards of beauty so that you might get the material resources to potentially be abundant and so on and so forth. Yeah, exactly. And something that's huge in communication scholars, which that's what I majored in. So that's kind of where my focus is, yeah. is that, you know, people are all about in-group and out-group status, like mm-hmm. identifying because we're social. And that's a big part of beauty standards. It's identifying to like, what is going to be accepted of my look? And it's they're the looks this these days they're stringent and they are unobtainable by a lot of people. You know that's hard when you live your your life every single day feeling like you don't identify as what is acceptable. That's hard. Mm-hmm. And people out there who make the comments of like, "Oh, you're beautiful for this," or "You're beautiful for that," you know, like and. The thing is, it's not all about beauty. We're focusing on that right now because it's just, Mm -hmm. just happens to be, you know, where we're at. But yeah, it's just the fact that you don't need to compare yourself to someone else to be beautiful, you know? I love that you said that. I was just listening to something the other day and they referenced Iyala Van Zandt, right? She's, Mm -hmm. she's really big in the kind of like the social healing realm, but she says that comparing yourself to others is is an act of violence against yourself. Mm-hmm. And so I love that you said that. And I, and I also recognize that we are really leaning in on the aesthetic or standards of beauty. But I, I want to validate this experience too, that we're even talking about the beauty standards because I think that this is one of the biggest barriers for people to see the deeper parts of people so that they can have entry into leadership roles career paths, uh, to be fitting in these other social roles. But I feel like because that is the physical manifestation of who we are, usually how we look is that that first piece mm-hmm. of, of how that in-group, out-group, right? That whole thing can, can, can cast judgment on us to determine if we are worthy to go to the next step of judgment, right? So, so I recognize that we're there too, but I appreciate it as well. Yeah. Exactly. And and you see it everywhere, you know, like there was this dynamic that we would discuss in some of my communication classes where it's like, there's this balance of like, kind of a middle ground of like, in here is like the spot of attractiveness that you're supposed to be. And if you're above that, then people think you're not worthy of, <laughs> you know, 
like pretty much you're not intelligent and there's like all these other assumptions that go along with you. (laughs) And if you're below that, then you are not going to be considered because you aren't attractive enough. And it's like, Mm -hmm. so we just automatically make all these assumptions and like, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't (laughs) kind of thing, you know? Absolutely. I certainly, I certainly, certainly agree. Yeah. You know, what's interesting about microaggressions as well is that usually when people become familiar with the depth and breadth of what microaggressions are, people across racial lines, ethnic lines start to (laughs) realize or recognize how they have been infected as well, right? Because usually like ability is something. English language learners experience it at rampant rates or degree attainment, where you live. There's so many of them. And I love teaching about microaggressions because when we get to peel back the layers of the onion, more people are able to recognize how They've had labels put on them and it's pushed them into a box. Now, you, you, now you're either pushing yourself to try not to be the label or you feel like you are completely trapped by the label of a microaggression. Now you're acting in it. And so I, 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 love, I love doing that work because it, it, oddly, it starts bringing people together beyond the racial lines and the racial lens. Yeah, and you start to realize how much that stuff really shouldn't matter, but how much you are allowing it to matter. Yep, absolutely. And, and the, the work that we're doing even right now or where we are talking about it or the trainings that Epic we, we facilitate, a lot of it is new to <laughs> the populations we're serving. And so while this work may be new to, to some of the learners, they have been experiencing microaggressions throughout their entire lives. And they've also have been perpetrators of them too, myself included, without having proper knowledge, right? So just now getting to a place where you're interrupting these microaggressions, it's like, I've lived it. It's, it's a part of me now. Like how, what's the step to actually let these, the, the impact of these microaggressions kind of fall off when these interventions are just coming now, but I'm, I'm 54 years old, I'm 70, I'm 19, you know? And so- I agree with you. And, and I think that it's, it's, it's great that we are moving into a time where we're having these very candid dialogues and we are being receptive of our difference through sharing the microaggressions. But there are a lot of people who have been dealing with these things for a lifetime without having language to describe what they were. They, they, did, they, they couldn't name it. Absolutely. It wasn't even like a topic of conversation that was considered. Yeah. Know? And even though people would feel it, like not everyone in the room would feel it, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's difficult. Like when that guy's saying, you know, you're beautiful for a black girl. Like imagined if there happened to have been another African-American girl next to you and she didn't <laughs> get told that. Imagine how that felt for her. Oh, absolutely. You know, all the time. It happens all of the time. And if we're speaking specifically about African-American women. I can't speak for every experience of women who identify as African-American, but from from the things that I've studied and the things that I've learned and I've listened to and I've witnessed and experienced, the the colorism is an extremely challenging, formidable uh, barrier between 
women and, and men, but specifically women, because usually when women are told things like that, you're pretty for a Black girl or you're beautiful for a Black girl, it's usually because there's something about your complexion where you're lighter in complexion, your hair is straighter, you know, or there's some feature, going back to what we were talking about earlier, there's some feature within you or on you that is reminiscent of a a European archetype. And so, yes. And so, and so it, we praise those things so much in our society. So absolutely, like you said, Bailey, the, the woman next to that woman who maybe is rich in her melanin, has features of the Ubuntu tribe that maybe her ancestors come from, you know, that's not valued here. So, so what is she to do with that? Living in a country <laughs> that does not value her beauty, you know, as beauty. So <laughs> yes, it, it certainly does impact women all of the time and happens all of the time. And that's why it matters, you know, even if it's not you that felt that someone did. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. Visit www.epiceducation.com for resources that will help you to understand and navigate the ever-changing world of diversity, equity, and inclusion. We are a company that trains and transforms with innovative in-person and online equity workshops that support school districts and leaders to build capacity to carry on this work internally. Now go out and have an epic day 